When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for me, you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Good evening, everyone. I wrote a little dash on my page to remember to say evening by the time I got to this point in the day. Uh, I'm thrilled uh, to be here this evening. Uh, quite honoured to be preaching at the first 6pm of 2020. Uh, this is my regular service, so what a joy to be opening God's Word with you all this morning. Uh, this evening. There we go. I'm going to be doing that this whole time. A little bit of comic relief the whole way through. Um, but before we get any further, I'd love to pray. So please bow your heads and join with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you've brought us all here together in this moment, this evening, that we might study your word together. Help us to focus on your word as much as we are able to push from our hands and our minds any distractions which might stop us from interacting with the Spirit and getting to know what you want us to know here this evening. Please guide us through the passage and be constantly working to shift our hearts away from sin and towards your Son. Lord, it's not through words on a page or any amount of preparation that this can take place. So, Lord, we ask that the Spirit would be at work in this building this evening, that it would be a work in our hearts and help us to then in turn work for you and alongside you until the day that your Son comes again. In his name we pray. Amen. So the passage that we're delving into this evening is the last part of a three-part series 
on living in the shadow of Jesus' return. We've touched briefly on the contents of Matthew chapter 24 and delved into over the last two weeks the two parables in the start of Matthew chapter 25 in verses 1 through 13 and then 14 through 30 respectively. And today's passage finishes up what is essentially one big sermon from Jesus. In fact, it's Jesus' final sermon before his death on the cross. Um, And Jesus chooses to wrap up this sermon in a suitably weighty fashion. That's W-E-I-G-H-T-Y. And the words I use later on will make the reason I spelled that out hopefully apparent. But before we get into the passage that is our passage for this evening, I would love to recap a little of what we've learned in the last two weeks. So has anybody here ever gone out to dinner at a restaurant? Anybody here ever gone out to dinner at a restaurant? Hopefully that's a fairly common experience. Now you people my age and younger, I'm not talking a restaurant where you pay first, tell them what you want, and then it comes in a brown paper bag. I'm talking a fancier restaurant. See, that didn't get a laugh at the 10 a.m. I'm talking a fancier restaurant. Hopefully you've been in this situation. And if you have, I'm sure you're aware that there are so many different factors that can change the way that you feel about the amount of time between when you tell the waiter what food you want and when that food arrives at your table. Perhaps you're sitting there, the conversation isn't going so well, you're super hungry or you're just a 21-year-old male and you're like that all the time. Perhaps they haven't brought beverages out yet so you're super thirsty, maybe you skipped breakfast that day so you're just, again, super duper hungry and the time goes so slowly, so slowly. Then again, perhaps you're out to dinner with some good friends, you're having a good time, enjoying each other's company. Perhaps you're super organized, you booked a table, there was no stress on the way in, you've eaten your normal two meals a day with a snack or two somewhere in there, you're well hydrated, and the time just flies by. You order and then suddenly the food appears at your table. Seems to be no wait whatsoever. It's safe to say that there are different ways to wait for things. And the stuff that we do in the meantime while we wait affects how we feel about the thing when it gets there. Now, living in the shadow of Jesus' return, that has been our theme for the past two weeks. Hopefully you made it to some of the 10 a.m. services. Um, If you didn't, I'm going to recap it for you a little bit now. The back half of Matthew 24 and all of 25, I believe, is intended to teach us how a Christian should be waiting for the return of Jesus, for Jesus' second coming. And that's quite a remarkably applicable bit of teaching when you think about it, because we are in that position. We, in this very moment as Christians, are waiting for Jesus' second coming. So when he was preaching this to his disciples, for them... It would have seemed far off. Seemed like something in the future that perhaps wasn't going to be right then and there if they listened to the parables that came just before. But for us, this is a real and vivid part of the Christian life. We are waiting. That's W-A-I-T-I-N-G. Testing my spelling. And what Jesus' final set of parables here before his death teaches us, including the two that we already studied, And the one we're looking at today is the different facets, that's the different ways that a Christian should be waiting for Jesus. The ways that they should be living in the shadow of Jesus' return. Now, just to catch you guys up that weren't here over the last couple of services, two weeks ago, 
in the parable of the ten virgins, we saw that we should wait knowing that Jesus' return could be long delayed. Yet, in doing that, we don't know he's not coming right now. We don't know he's not coming today. We don't know he's not coming in the next five seconds. Okay, we're all good. I can continue on. Last week, in the parable of the talents, we saw how we should wait as servants whose job it is to improve upon what God entrusts to us. In the case of the servants in the passage, that's money. It's actually, when it says talents, it means a talenton, which is a measure of weight, which if it's in silver, that's equivalent to about 20 years' wages of the average working person at the time. If it's in gold, well, you can multiply that out yourself. It's an awful lot of money. If God entrusts you with things on this earth while you wait for Jesus' return, you should improve upon what the master, God, has entrusted to you. We're tasked with this. Now, if you want to go into those parables uh, in more detail, Jeff did an amazing job of that, and I will joyfully point you towards the podcast, available anywhere you can get podcasts under Richmond Anglican Church Sermons, or you can head over to our website. If what I said just made absolutely no sense, but you're still interested, chat to myself or Christian Damtoft after the service, and we'll help you sort that out. But for this week, our final week on this topic, we're looking at Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. We're looking at what we should be doing while we wait for Jesus' return, how we live while we wait. What we're going to do is we're going to step through this passage. By the grace of God, we're going to gain an understanding of what is going on. And then we're going to discuss some interpretations and some common misconceptions. And we're hopefully going to land on what we can learn from this passage and how we can apply that to our lives here at Richmond Anglican Church. So let's get into it. You're going to need your Bibles open. I would recommend you have a Bible open. If that requires you to have a phone, that's totally fine. It might even help you later on. We're going to flick to a bunch of different passages through the Bible. Jesus starts out by setting the scene in verse 31 and part of verse 32. Look with me. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. Now, the title used to describe our main character so far in this parable and this vision, where this picture comes from, is found in a little-known book in the Old Testament called Daniel, from chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says this. See if you can notice any similarities. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Seems pretty similar, right? It should, because it's a reference. Yet, in this reference that Jesus is making, the Son of Man, we can understand Jesus to be clearly talking about himself. This term, Son of Man, full of Old Testament importance, is used by Jesus 32 times in the book of Matthew alone, and it's quite easy to argue that it's his favorite title for himself when he's referring to himself in regards to Old Testament prophecy. So that's our scene. Jesus, with his title established and his glory present, sitting on his, as it says, glorious throne. And then in the following verses, half of 32 through 33, he does something. He divides 
all the nations of the world, gathered before him into two groups. On the right, sheep, and on the left, goats. Jesus then surprises both of those groups. He surprises them with the following. Read with me verses 34 through 46. We're just going to read the whole thing. Then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him. And this is where the surprise comes in. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in? Or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king, that's Jesus, will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, that's the goats, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. These people too are surprised, and they answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or needing clothes, or sick, or in prison, and did not help you? And Jesus will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So that's our passage, final judgment clear, and it appears at first glance to be quite simple. We have two groups, goats and sheep, and from the results of the passage, we clearly want to be like who? Sheep. Good answer. However, when we think of how to actually do that, we do run into a few key problems relating to what we know of Scripture. And the first of our, as I mentioned earlier, different interpretations for this passage rears its head. You see, if we take note of the key difference between the two groups, goats and sheep, and we think of what the difference is, it appears that it is something that they did which led to either destruction or salvation. It appears that Jesus says, if you do not engage with the least of these, my brothers, then you will go to hell. Now you might be thinking, Jesus, this doesn't seem like a message of salvation by grace through faith. And you'd be right, it doesn't seem like that. So what do we do? Well, we need to understand the context before we can understand what's going on. And the context in this case is the rest of Scripture. I'm only 21. I don't pretend to understand the entire Bible. So what we're going to do is we're going to flick through a bunch of different verses so that we're not bringing my own desires and modern inclinations into what we're learning. As Jeff loves to say, the best lens to view the Bible through is the Bible. And what we find when we observe the whole throughout Scripture is that there is a message that we are saved by grace through faith. 
even in the Old Testament. If you've got one of the outlines at the start, there's a couple of dot points about halfway down the page with a bunch of verses. We're going to step through those now. Genesis chapter 15. God comes to Abram and it says in verse 6, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And it's not actually until two chapters later that the covenant of circumcision and works were completed. So we see, even in the Old Testament, promises, faith preceding works. Hebrews chapter 11, that reading that we had at the start, speaks of the heroes of the faith. Each one of them was accredited righteousness and heralded as a hero of the faith, not by their deeds, <clears throat> excuse me, but by the faith that spurred them to those deeds. If you know that passage well, Samson is in there. And if you know anything about him, he wasn't exactly the purest of men. <laughs> Thanks for the giggle. <laughs> Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, and that word while is so important, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the midst of of your addictions, in the midst of your sins, in the midst of your problems, in the midst of your thoughts, in the midst of your internet search history, God looked at you and said, Christ, die for them. God didn't wait for us to do anything, but rather while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And as if there was any doubt left in our minds, Paul in verse 9 says, Not by works, so that no one can boast. So with this context, what is Jesus saying? Well, he cannot be preaching salvation by works. And I would propose that he's not dealing with the root of salvation at all. He's simply not dealing with the cause. For that is, as we've established, grace through faith. Rather, Jesus is dealing with the fruit of salvation. He's dealing with the results of coming to realize the salvation through Christ laid upon you by grace through faith. For the previous parables of chapter 25... As a result of salvation and the Spirit working within our hearts, we should wait knowing that Jesus' second coming could be long delayed and then also be ready at any moment because we don't know when it's going to happen. And we should wait as servants whose job it is to improve upon what the Lord has entrusted to us. Yet, through these things, salvation is not gained. The fruit not the root. You see, no amount of effort on our part can push past the overwhelming blanket that is but a single sin. For all have sinned and fall short. But God offers grace, and we can accept it through faith. But the question remains, how do we know that we are saved? How do we know? And the answer, and I think this passage gives us a good insight into this, is fruit. 
It is a change within us that is not the normal growing up process, but rather a deliberate shift towards righteousness, led by the Spirit of God. How do you know that a lemon tree is a lemon tree? It grows lemons. I had a bit of a brain snap at the 10 a.m. service, and I forgot that oranges growed on trees. Um, How do you know an orange tree is different to an apple tree? One grows oranges, one grows apples. It's pretty simple. How do you know that a Christian is a Christian? By the fruit that they produce. Look with me at verses 35 through 37. What did the sheep do? They fed the hungry. They watered the thirsty. They welcomed strangers. They clothed the naked. They visited the sick and the imprisoned. They did these things. And yet... They were surprised when Jesus pointed out to them that they had done them. Because these works that they did were so much the result of a shift within them by the Spirit towards righteousness that it left them serving without even realizing it. They were serving unselfconsciously. They were unaware that they were doing it. They were surprised. Because salvation is by grace. Yet, it is made visible through the fruit of that salvation, which in this case is unconscious, unselfconscious, unaware acts of service. So in living as Christians, while we wait for Jesus' return, what should we do? Well, we learn through this passage that as we wait for Jesus' return, we must do as the people did and we should unselfconsciously serve. By unselfconscious, I mean not thinking of yourself, but rather serving in such a way that it is our natural state. To the point that we are unaware that we're doing it. A heart of service which flows from that direct change to who we are as driven by a saving faith. Throughout the Bible, we see this response to salvation. No greater example than the Apostle Paul, dead in sin, saved and then a marked change. If you look at your life prior to accepting Jesus' input into it, and then you look at your life this side of salvation, and you see no difference, then you have some tough questions to ask yourself. And you might have some catching up to do on your time with the Lord. So that's our main theme. We've established the main purpose of the passage, unselfconscious Service, service that doesn't think of ourselves, but rather in an unaware way, in a natural state, serves those around us. That's what we should be doing in this time before Jesus' return. Yet I would love to spend some time asking a few more questions, and this does narrow our focus a bit. Now, of course, we should be serving everyone around us. The Bible tells us that in so many different places, but I want to look at what this passage says. Look with me at verse 40. I want to ask the question, who should we serve? This is verse 40. The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Now, the original Greek word for brother in this context is gender neutral. There are two different options for that word. One is gender neutral, one isn't. That's why and sisters appears in the church Bibles because it's a newer version of the NIV. The ESV version says the least of these my brothers. So in answering the who, we must ask ourselves, who are Jesus' brothers? You could assume that this is Jesus' way of talking about anyone in the whole world who is poor, needy, or broken. And if you make that assumption, you're not really going to go wrong in this passage. Because what you then land on is instilling a desire to love, help, and assist all people. And this is a concept which aligns with vast portions of the Bible. However, I believe that in this context, that's not what this passage is saying. Because the term brothers is too linked in with the people that are being spoken to. So what does Jesus mean when he talks of his brothers? In the Gospel of Matthew, this Gospel, Jesus' brothers could mean his literal half-brothers and sisters. It could mean the children of Joseph and Mary, his step-siblings. However, when Jesus is not speaking of his kin, that is his literal family, He quite unerringly refers to his disciples as his brothers. One of my favorite examples is in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. Look with me at this story. It's remarkable. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So if we therefore take brothers in this passage to mean Jesus' disciples, it narrows our focus a bit. Now this isn't to dilute the countless other passages in the Bible which deal with helping the poor, especially those who are in in circumstances not of their own making. Jesus has a real heart for all of mankind. When he was asked to sum up the Ten Commandments, what did he do? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul and your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. However, in this passage, he seems to clearly promote service of his disciples by those who would be his disciples if we take this term brothers to mean jesus followers it also gives us a good explanation for his self-identification with those being served because it's rather curious if you think about it jesus views help given to the least of these as help to himself It's a bit strange. It's not something we see in our everyday lives. I don't tend to view help given to someone else as help given to me. But maybe we can understand this a little bit if we look at the story of Saul, who would become Paul in Acts chapter 9, on his way to Damascus to continue to persecute Christians, those who belonged to the way, as the chapter says. He was struck down by light. And the voice of Jesus says, Saul, Saul, Why do you persecute me? Jesus could have said the church. Jesus could have said Christians. Jesus could have said my people. But rather, he clearly aligns himself with his followers, with his disciples. 
So then how do we bring this all together? What do we learn from this? It's all well and good to think. These lofty thoughts of while we wait for Jesus, we should serve unconsciously, unselfconsciously our Christian brothers and sisters. But if we leave it that vague, nothing will happen. For us at this church, Richmond Anglican, here today, we want to be people who do this. We want to be like the sheep. I'm sure you can all agree you would read that passage and you'd say, I don't want to be a goat. There's only two groups. I know what I want to be. So therefore, we should serve unselfconsciously. And you may be thinking, how? Because that does present a little bit of a paradox, doesn't it? How do I serve without necessarily being aware that I'm serving? And without necessarily being aware that when I serve, I'm serving Jesus. But the answer is so simple. You start out by being aware that you're serving. How do you start to serve without thinking about it? You start out by thinking about it. You acknowledge your faith and then what your response to that should be and you make a step into deliberate service of your Christian brothers and sisters and over time that becomes normal. Over time it becomes a habit. On average, it takes about 66 days of repeating something every single day for it to become a habit. For some people, that's only 15, the lucky ones. For those of us that aren't that lucky, it can take up to 256 in one of the studies I read. That's an awfully long time to do something every single day before it starts to become normal. In today's passage, in living in the shadow of Jesus' return, we're waiting. We have salvation through Christ. That's been offered. We have salvation through Christ By grace, we can accept it through faith. And that salvation should work a spirit-led change, a change for righteousness that goes beyond the normal. And I want to challenge you as a church to be thinking not just vaguely about what's read up here on a Sunday, but deliberately of ways you can serve those sitting in the seats around you. Now, it's important to note, and someone brought this up with me this morning, that when I say Christian brothers and sisters, I don't just mean the people in this room. The church is so much larger than that. Our Christian family is so much larger than that. Walking down the street, you don't even know who is your Christian brother and sister. So you should be serving everyone. But for tonight, I want to focus in on the people in this building. And I want you all to turn around now, if you're at the front, stay looking the direction if you're at the back, and look around at the faces in this room. Go on, do it. Let's break the awkward eye contact with me and turn around and look at other people. Because this is your Christian family. Look at, don't forget the people at the sound desk. Ben's waving. These are your Christian brothers and sisters. These are the people that you are called to serve. Not just vaguely, but deliberately. And I want to commend to you also the serving the sun forms. If you're the sort of person who that was terrifying, just making eye contact with a bunch of other people, and you don't necessarily want to be that visible, we do have forms you can fill out where you can tick a box that says, I want to serve in this way, and then we'll get in contact with you. Because as Christians... We should serve those around us. We should serve the people in this building, especially those who might be doing it tough. Now, the flip side of that, if we want to be people that serve those that are going through hard times, we also need to be people that when we're going through hard times, we reach out. We ask for help. Because sometimes life can be isolating. Sometimes life can be tough. 
And sometimes it's hard to let other people in. But as Christians, you can take comfort in the knowledge that the Bible says that your Christian brothers and sisters should be serving you in your times of need. You can take an amazing comfort in that and you can reach out. You can ask for help. If you're hungry, you can get fed. If you're thirsty, you should be able to get watered by your Christian brothers and sisters. I don't want this to be a vague thing that's said. If you're feeling yourself led towards finding a way you can serve today, feel free to come speak to either myself or Christian or one of the heads of ministry at church or Jeff or one of the wardens. We'd love to point you in the right direction. And in doing that, it's important to know that we cannot be perfect. And wondrously, we can take comfort in the knowledge that we aren't really expected to be. But as both the goats and the sheep were held accountable on the last day for the fruit that they produced, so will we. So will Richmond Anglican. So will every one of you, so will I. And the greatest tragedy that I can imagine is getting to the final day and standing as a group with the rest of all the nations gathered with Jesus in his glory. And he starts dividing people and I'm seeing people that I know going on both sides of the fence. I can't think of anything worse. Because salvation is on offer. We need to accept it. And once we've accepted it, that should lead a change in our hearts. If you're struggling with the fact that you don't think you've changed very much, maybe you need to step out and do something about it. Do something active. Do something deliberate. And over time, let that form a habit, which can then lead you to unself-conscious service. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, please work within our hearts to change us. Please help us to push beyond the sins we've committed, the things that we've omitted from our lives, which we should have done, and help us to look towards your Son. Help us to grasp the salvation that is offered by grace through faith, and then help us to turn that into serving those around us. Help us to respond to the grace that has been offered to us, the sacrifice that your Son made by sacrificing ourselves for others. Our Christian brothers and sisters, not just those in this room, but also including those in this room, Lord. Please help us to help the homeless on the street. Please help us to help our friends and our family. Please help us to help those at our workplace. Please help us to reach out and be known as people who serve by nature, who without thinking about what's in it for us or what we lose, reach out and help. Dear Lord, we ask that you would keep us all safe in this heat. And we also ask that you would keep the fires at bay. In your son's name we pray. Amen.